One of the fun parts of my job in working with lots of different businesses is that I get to interact with subject matter experts where I knew nothing previously in their domain space. Such is the case with longtime SNOP thought leader, consultant, speaker, and writer, Bob Stahl, who I met back in 2010. And Bob is our guest on this edition of CFO Bookshelf. So anything you want to know about SNOP, we scratched the surface in this interview with Bob Stahl. And my first question for Bob was, is SNOP still relevant? It, yeah, it certainly is. It's um, It's been around for uh, quite some time. Uh, um, and we've learned more and more about how to use it, how to implement it, how to make it uh, most beneficial to a corporation and to make it simpler. And we've continued to get smarter. Um, but just because it's been around for a long time doesn't mean that it, it wears out. It's a foundation. It's a fundamental to running a business, much like double entry bookkeeping in the accounting world might be said that, you know, nobody would ever ask his double entry bookkeeping did. No, it's a foundation. It's it's one of those things. It's an imperative to be running a business. Well, SNO is becoming that, if not already, a generally accepted manufacturing practice. Everybody's doing it today, but not everybody's doing it as well as they can. It's not only not dead, but there's a lot of people that can make it better to be able to pay off or be, be, be able to produce more results than they're getting with it. So it's far from dead. It's, it's an integral part of running a business properly today. Let's say you're meeting with a, uh, a young manufacturing firm, maybe they're 10 years old, and they've never heard of SNOP, Sales and Operations Planning, what what's the simplest out of the box definition for SNOP? Sure, it's it's balancing demand and supply, and everybody's doing that. You cannot not be doing that. That's a double negative. Um, if you're in a business, if demand and supply are out of balance, bad things happen. If you have more demand than you have the ability to satisfy that demand. What happens is customers say, if you can't give me the last order, I'm not going to give you my next order, and you start to lose your business. If it's the other way around, you have more resources, people, equipment, machinery, then you have demand stream volume, then you run out of funding. You run out of money. Your financials are not good. So balancing demand and supply is intrinsic. You have to do it. It's only how are you going to do it, and are you doing it in the best way possible with simplicity? So, so it's not something that says uh, you can be without it. Even if you've never heard of it, you're still doing it, maybe by another name or by no name. You're balancing demand and supply in some fashion. I like the usage of your words, not just the usage, but the spacing of your words. You're using demand and supply instead of supply and demand. That's on purpose, isn't it? Could you explain yes, that? Sure. Back when I was an undergraduate, uh, and the academics still talk about it as supply and demand, we're a supply-driven economy. That means you produce as much as you can, as cheap as you can, and worry about selling it later. Well, it no longer does supply come first and then worry about selling it later. Demand comes first. You anticipate demand. Now, we call that uh, the F word, forecasting. <laughs> and I try not to use that much because it's got a lot of baggage. But de demand anticipation 
is anticipating what the future will look like and then putting in place the resources, the supply, to satisfy that demand. So it's really demand first, supply second, not the other way around. We've become a demand-driven economy, global economy, not a supply-driven economy like after World War II, where we were the only manufacturers in the whole world. You didn't have to worry about selling stuff. All you had to worry about was producing it. You'd find a seller later. No longer is that the case. It's demand first, and then you match supply to demand. Instead of predicting demand anticipation, I just I like that much better because forecasting is impossible, right? Or, or, or well, pr- predicting it, is impossible, right? Yeah, it's. It, it, there's only one thing you're certain of when you're doing a forecast, and that is going to be wrong. It's a matter of how wrong. I think it was Yogi Berra that said something, his Berraisms. He said, I hate for forecasting, particularly when it involves the future. <laughs> but forecasting is not something that's a science. It's one part science, and it's a couple of parts art. It's anticipating the future with all the information you can assemble together to predict the future. It's not a precise science by no means. Some people think that it is, and they do statistical forecasting. Well, that's an oxymoron. It sounds precise, but because it's statistics doesn't mean that it's precise. It's modeling, and that's an input to somebody's opinion about the future in anticipating what the demand will be, but it's not the science and the only science about how do you anticipate the future. I met you back in 2010 uh, with a shared client, and we were, I'll just say that we were under uh, 50 million in revenue at that time. Size of business doesn't matter. SNLP can be used in a $5 million business. A $5 billion business, is that correct? Yes, I, I've had clients over the years of my career to 40, 45, 50, whatever it's been, uh, as small as a million dollars a year annual sales and as big as $50 billion. Now, demand and supply exist in both those organizations. In one, it's usually a single site, a handful of people, and a handful of products. It tends to be a little bit easier. Balancing demand and supply in a big company like Clorox or or like uh, um, Dow Chemical, they've got hundreds of sites all over the world intermingled. The complexity of how you get that put together is much more difficult and elaborate than it is in a small company. But the basic fundamentals and principles are exactly the same. They both have to follow the same process to get a, a valid plan put together that does that that process of balancing demand and supply. We're going to hit more of the nuts and bolts of SNOP shortly. I want to back up, if you don't mind. How did you get involved? Because you have an interesting story, but I want to hear from you. Walk us through the beginnings, the the origin story for you. Yeah. My career has been one of being very lucky, but I define that as my high school football coach defined luck. He said, luck is when your preparation meets an opportunity, then you're lucky. And I've been that. I've been lucky in my career. When I, when I graduated from college, I graduated in the morning and I was commissioned in the afternoon into the United States Navy. I then went to some schools in the summer and was found myself in the, in the Mekong Delta of uh, Vietnam for a year. Um, and when I finished that, 
I came back to the United States and was in the destroyer Navy for another three or four years. I had an obligation. I had a military scholarship, a Navy scholarship. And at the end of that, I said, I don't want to spend a career in the Navy. I said, I was an industrial engineer with a degree in economics when I graduated. Uh, I guess I should pursue working in a factory. That's what my education was about. So I went out, looked for a job in a factory, and I found one. And it was an, uh, an executive training program with a large corporation. The specialty where they had the executive training program for a year was in production planning, they called it, which was this field, the supply chain field. That For that year, I would spend time at the executive offices at 633 3rd Avenue, 33rd floor in New York City, Manhattan. I'd spend a week or so there following executives around. Then they'd send me out to a plant to fill in for somebody on a vacation doing scheduling or planning. And they did anything but that. It was a crisis. The disconnect that I learned during that short period of time between what was going on on the 33rd floor and what was the real world was immense. After I finished that year, they put me into a can plan, called me a schedules coordinator, of which I did neither one. <laughs> it was a big void. It was a vacuum. There was no methodology to it. It's a matter of answering the phone and responding to somebody screaming at you. And and after about a year or so of that, I said, I'm not going to spend my career doing this. This is crazy. This is no way to make a living. But I was in this field now, supply planning, demand planning, call it supply chain management today. Um, it was a huge va vacuum and nature abhors a vacuum. So I started looking around what I was going to do next, sell life insurance. There was a couple of people that said, you know, there's a new way to do this. There was my luck. I was in the right place at the right time with a motivation. And, and I said, you know, what these people are saying seems to make some sense, but at the big company, I'm not going to be able to change much. So I left the large corporation and went to a small company with the direct intent of bringing them up to state-of-the-art based on what these people were talking about as kind of a laboratory. And as I did that, I hired a, guy named, hired a guy named Oliver White, one of those people, and he guided me to become one of his very first Class A experiences, which was how, uh, how to improve a company through managing its supply chain. Those are today's words, not the words we used then. And we made improvements like uh, return on net investment went from 6% to 48%. That's wow. a 600% improvement. Huge. And, and after about eight years there, I said, you know, uh, what am I going to do next? Uh, I had two choices. I could move up into the administrative 33rd floor, so to speak, and do that and try and you know, incorporate what I've learned into those levels or stick around this space and do it for a living helping other people. And this guy, Oliver White, said, I'd love to have you join me as an associate. And so I, I did. Um, he, he advised me to work for a software company for a year to learn that industry from the inside out because this does involve software. And after that, I joined him as an associate. And uh, the rest is history. I've been doing this for for 40 some odd years. The irony is this guy, Oliver White, that I joined after I left industry, within a year, a year and a half, he passed away. A malignant, um, uh, malignant uh, tumor on his carotid artery. And so I've been doing it as an individual, just an entrepreneur uh, ever since. 
And the maturity of the space has just grown and grown. And I've been part of that, filling that vacuum and that void. And it's been a, it's been a joy. When we got connected, and I forgot who even recommended you uh, to me, but I had made that association with you and Oliver White because he'd written a book mm-hmm. back in the early 1990s, and I still have it on a mm-hmm. bookshelf, Focus Forecasting. And and when I heard that there was a there was a connection between you two, I thought, okay, we, we've got to hire Bob. Uh, at the time, you may have been Robert Dust, but we're hiring him. Focus forecasting did 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 Oliver Ollie did he invent focus forecasting or did he just put a name to it? No, I, I'm not even sure he put the name to it. There was a guy named Bernie Smith. At oh, no. a, okay, uh, that's right. American Hardware Supply that created the process called focus forecasting. And at the time, the science of forecasting was modeling and there was a great deal of credence put in it. And Bernie said, you know, that's not all there is to this, but we need to create it as an assist. And what he did is he said, of all the models that people have, and there are algorithms and complicated mathematical formulas. He, you take the past history and you'd model that history based on a different formula with a different set of assumptions into the future. And what he said is, I'm going to write a program that's going to say, take that past historical data, analyze it, and and determine which of those formulas would have have predicted the past best. And then tell me what the future would look like using that formula. And that's called focus forecasting. A lot of people now call it fitted forecasting and a bunch of others. But generically, it was what Bernie Smith at American Hardware Supply created. Now, he was he was a friend of Oliver White. And Ollie then promoted a lot of it. Ollie was a great writer and a, a communicator. So he used that notion to, to, come, to make sure that people understood that the mathematical modeling was only one of many tools with which to do demand anticipation. I'm holding up one of your books, which we'll talk about. Uh, you are the co-author of three other books in addition to this one. This is Sales and Operations Planning, The Executive's Guide. Again, we'll come back to that. The reason I'm holding it up in my hand is I view you as being the pioneer in SNOP. You may push back a little bit and say, no, I was in the right place at the right time. But do I? am I wrong to say that Bob Stahl is one of the pioneers in SNOP? Is that correct? Well- yeah, I'm not sure I'd, I'd want to consume that. There was a, a set of people back in the mid to late 70s and into the early 80s that were dealing in this space. The notion of aggregations, looking at the big picture as opposed to getting lost in the in the detail, I call that the suicide quadrant, thinking about the future in highly granular detail long into the future is suicide. You can't do it. But there was a set of people talking about that. The laboratory of which I did and used Oliver White as a, a, a somebody to help guide me really was the foundation for a lot of that. Now, what we did was not what we're doing today. We're doing today far better, far, far simpler than what we did then. But that was one of the foundations and it was a set of people, I think Dick Ling probably is the guy who coined the term sales and operations planning. Um, uh, what Tom Wallace and I, my writing partner, have said, uh, we weren't necessarily, didn't give birth, but we were there at the birth. And since then, 
uh, we've become the thought leaders of this space. Uh, with, and it's been seven books we've written in this space now. Sorry about that. I, I was thinking of the four that are on, on Amazon. Yep. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch on Amazon and there's a few others. But, but, but we, we've kind of matured and developed the body of knowledge about not only what is it and how does it work and what are the keys to success, but the implementation methodology to minimize risk. Because, see, doing SNOP properly doesn't mean you're going to do what you did before better. It says you're going to do things differently to be better. And that creates discomfort. And to the executive office, discomfort translates to risk. Risk is something they will avoid. So we have an implementation methodology that's low risk, low cost, quick results, that sort of thing. So, so that's become the mantra of our writings is not only how to do it, but how to get an organization to embrace it at low risk. SNOP and the reduction of complexity, and you've already hit on this a little bit, Bob, but how does SNOP create simplicity in the business? Yeah, now if you think about balancing demand and supply, and that's an imperative. If you don't do that, bad things happen. There's really two parts of doing that. One is the the volumetric picture, that's the big picture. The picture of how big is the volume that we have to serve and what resources do we need to serve that without um, identifying the ultimate detail. Uh, we call that the volumetric space or the volume space. Then there's the second part of balancing demand and supply, which is what we call the mix space. The mix space is the detail of which one am I going to produce? You don't need to know that until you're at the lead time of ordering materials and configuring those materials. That mix space is the detail. SNOP is the volume space. What's the big picture? You need to do both, and they're integrated, but yet they're separate and distinct. Simplicity says you don't try and solve the big problems in the mix space reactively. What you do is you get to the volume space, see the big issues, the big disconnects, solve the issues with proper policy and strategy in the, in the volumetric space so that you can do the routine things in the mixed space routinely. I, I'm going to just go ahead and say probably the last 25 CEOs I've served, they're going to be nodding in agreement with you, but I'm going to bet that when you get into a room, a conference room with middle-level managers, don't you find that they're typically focused on the mix <laughs> Instead of oh. the macro, is that correct, Bob? Uh, without question. Uh, uh, an imbalance in the volume space barely whispers. In other words, if you have an imbalance, more demand two years from now than you have supply, that doesn't scream for attention. That barely whispers. But when that imbalance moves into the short term, the mixed space, where you're not supplying customers to what they want, that screams for attention. And that's what sucks executives into the process of balancing demand and supply far too late. The, the best signal that SNOP is not being done well is if executives have to work in the mixed space. They shouldn't. They set policy and strategy, fiduciary responsibility and risk volumetrically so that you can do the routine things routinely with the routine part of the organization where they can devote their time to other things. So, so the, the greatest symptom that SNOP is not working is that 
you're engaged in the current mixed space this month, this quarter. And if that's where you are, you're not doing SNOP very well. There's no way we could get through this conversation without bringing up COVID. The people who are using SNOP, let's go back March, April, May, the rest of the summer, even now, uh, the fall months, we're getting ready to head into the winter months. Mm-hmm. Do they throw? Did they have to throw out SNOP, or did SNOP help them to get through COVID? Yeah, the root of SNOP is uncertainty and change. It says anytime you put together a demand anticipation or the forecasting word, it's going to be wrong. You have to update it with a robust process that says we're smarter tomorrow than we were yesterday. What are we going to do differently? That updating and dealing with that uncertainty is what SNOP existence became part of, is its foundation is. COVID is merely an introduction of a degree of uncertainty that's far greater. You know, a lot of the markets dried up. A lot of the markets exploded. If you were Clorox, for example, disinfectants, oh, my goodness, you couldn't keep up. Uh, That sort of thing. But if you were making casual stuff that was optional purchases, your business may have dried up almost fully. You couldn't even produce because people couldn't come to work. The uncertainty that you had to deal with and the replanning that you had to do Without an SNOP process, you absolutely got punished. If you had an SNOP process, then you put together what the new variables are, what the new uncertainties are, and then deal with that uncertainty, putting a plan back together based on the new reality that COVID has brought forth. Without SNOP, COVID was a much bigger problem to those than those that had SNOP validly. You probably have heard this a lot. So you, you've been introduced to a prospect and this could be going back 20 years, 25 years, five years. I can hear a CEO saying right now, but we already do strategic planning or we've already adopted, let's say back in the 1990s, we've already adopted MRP2 or we're, we're doing this management plan. Yeah. What's the response when you hear things like that? You know, a lot of the business functions are always being done. It's a matter of are they being done well and are they connected. Every company operates at three kind of levels. The strategic level, which is deciding what are the right things to do. The tactical levels, which decides how do we do those things right. And then the execution of making it happen. Now, the iteration of change and uncertainty causes that whole thing to iterate. A company that's doing strategic planning oftentimes has a disconnect with its tactical or execution. And what they get into is a problem where they're setting strategic plans beyond their level of competency. There was a terrific milestone article written in 1985 uh, by a guy named Robert Hayes, and it was titled Strategic Planning Forward and Reverse. A summary of it is on my website. Uh, In that article, what Robert Hayes said, strategic planning forward and reverse, is oftentimes that top part of that, the strategic plan, trying to decide what are the the right things to do, we do without credence or total input from what we're capable of doing. And it pushes us to a playing field of incompetence every time because the future market is always going to want things we're not doing and don't have a competency for. 
He says forward and reverse is that you have to take the tactical and execution, develop capabilities in companies, and then exploit them into strategies. And in fact, <clears throat> what we've learned over time is you don't do a top-down strategic planning or bottom-up. You do it in both directions. SNOP is the process that fits in the overlap between those two. For example, if you, for three months in a row, have not done what you said you wanted to do, companies often say, well, we just have bad execution. No, it's absolutely clear you're trying to do something you're not capable of doing. That's a bad strategy. You can't do something not three times unless you say we're trying to do it on purpose. No, you got to assume you were trying to do it right, but you didn't three times in a row. That says you got to hide that incompetency with a strategy until you gain the competency. And, and that's the forward and reverse. SNOP doesn't set strategy. It's a process that enables strategy to be determined and validated to what your capabilities are versus what, you're, what the market is asking you to do. And those two need to match, but they don't always come to match perfectly by accident. But and SNOP is a means, a process by which you bring those two together. And what a great distinction. How can we get better at demand anticipation, especially where you've got some volatility? Yep, yep. There's something I've come to, and this is an enhancement of evolution over time. It's what I call the multiple view approach to forecasting. It's like a three-legged stool. You don't have a good forecasting process unless it has three components, three elements. Those elements can be, A, a market view, not customer view, but market view. What's happening to the market we serve? Now, COVID was a great disruptor to that. So it's changed. But what is, what is the market doing? And what are the leading indicators that indicate what that market's going to do from there on? Not your products, but the market that those products serve. Um, the second part might be a customer view. What are our customers, which is a portion of the market, but it's not all the market. What are our customers doing? Are they cre increasing their market share or decreasing their market share? Are they competitively disadvantageous or advantageous? The third is the one we've been talking about, the statistical modeling. That's a component to uh, the opinion of the three-legged view. There's the distribution view. Are distributors selling your product? How many stores is your product in? All that sort of thing if you're consumer products. But it's a multiple view approach. It's not one of those that tells you the whole story. You've got to have all three views, none of which will be perfectly coinciding. They will disagree. Reconciliation of that disagreement is part of what SNOP does, and it's a behavioral issue. And that disagreement is what creates a discomfort often with management is usually one person decides, no, this is a collaborative consensus building approach that says we, in, we, <clears throat> we enable and we facilitate disagreement. That multiple view brings about disagreement on the demand anticipation. Then you must reconcile it. I usually call that as part of the SNOP defined process is the reconciliation step. But one of the CEOs I dealt with, he said, no, you've got to call it the demand agreement step, uh, the de demand agreement, because it's a damn meeting, D-A-M, de demand agreement meeting. He says, because it's one difficult meeting to run, because three people have three different views, each of which think they're right. 
but they come to the discussion and not I'm right and I'll tell you why you're wrong. They come to the discussion and says, here's what I see. Now let's see what you see. Let's try and reconcile that into a single view. And when it can't be, then leadership, senior leadership, president himself, herself, then says, this is the forecast. This is the demand anticipation. This is the demand side of the business that we're going to use to plan our resources. Now, could that involve risk and or demand truncation? Yeah, you could say we're not going to serve some part of the market. That whole discussion about demand must come not from a single view, but from a multiple view, at least three. Some people have four or five. And then you compare them and come up with the best view. I'm smiling for two reasons. Number one, the three-legged stool. I think that's brilliant. I'm also smiling because it's a great segue to the next question about how do we get better at communication? I would like to lead the witness if I'm allowed to. So as, as we talk about how we get better at communication, how we get better at this reconciliation process, could you please mention your 60-30-10 rule? I think sure. it's just incredible. So yeah. I'll yield. In the very beginnings of this, we used to struggle with the mechanics. Um, when I was in industry working with Oliver White, developing some of these methodologies, we didn't have computers and spreadsheets. We had a 18 column accounting paper on which we did this. I remember we that. It, <laughs> we used to call it the process, the write your socks form because it had lots of numbers on it, but it would reconcile, if you will, different, uh, different perspectives and views. And, and at the time struggling with the mechanics of how do we put all the mechanics together in the data Clearly, that's part of the success. You have to have some competency in the area of developing, extracting, organizing, displaying, viewing data. And if you get that perfectly done, that will contribute 10% to your success. People who have succeeded with this would state that. That's the 10% of the 10, 30, 60 rule. The 30% is taking that data and using it through a defined and disciplined process that gains collective, collaborative consensus in a collegial fashion, looking for what we agree on and understanding that disagreement is a strength, not a weakness. And in order to get to the best resolution, the best, we must be willing to disagree, disagree without being disagreeable reconciling that the process brings those disagreements to sharp focus. That's another 30%. Well, that only gets you to 40% of success. Well, 60% is behavior. It's doing things differently. Understanding the discontent uh, is something that must be dealt with. We call it the old way of doing business is putting the moose under the table. The moose is the big, ugly animal that represents a conflict that we've never reconciled. Nobody talks about it because it's, dis it's uncomfortable. Oftentimes, it's disruptive. And, and we, we know it's there, but we don't talk about it. It's under the table. We can hear that moose breathing. We can smell its breath, but we don't deal with it. SNOP says, no, put that moose right on the table, on the conference room table, and deal with it. That's the 60% getting behavior. Now, to reconcile disagreement requires a new mindset. I work with a guy named Stuart Levine. He's a, a lawyer, uh, JD, he graduated as a lawyer. He's no longer a lawyer, 
Because after 10 or 12 years, he said, you know, lawyers don't reconcile this agreement. They create it. So he said, I'm not going to practice law. I'm going to practice reconciliation. He teaches in the Cal Berkeley School of Law now, uh, uh, conflict resolution. And that's what SNOP does is learn how to do conflict resolution. And from Stewart, I learned a lot of things, one of which is that every disagreement has two parts. One is the substance of the disagreement. I disagree with what you're saying or the numbers or whatever you're saying. I disagree with the substance. But the second is what's the emotional baggage you bring with that. And if you don't put both issues on the table, exposing the vulnerability of that, you will not solve that problem of disagreement. You will merely hide it and you're putting a moose under the table. You've got to put it on the table. If you don't resolve it fully, it'll come back later as another problem from the same source. So resolving disagreement and the behavior of doing that is the 60%. And I call that that learning from history, the 60, 30, 10 rule. And where I got that from was a gal named Laura Cesari, who's a researcher in this field of supply chain management. Say her name again, please. Laura Cesari, C-E-C-E-R-I, I think it is. Got it. Thank you. She's, and I met her maybe 30 years ago, and she was in the, in the research area of the supply chain where she'd go out and interview a bunch of companies and tell everybody what they were doing. And for the earliest part, because not too many people were doing it right, they she'd come back with some information that was true, but not authentic. But it was in 2010 that I heard her speak, and she learned, I've, I've got a new mindset. I've learned, and she didn't put it the 60-30-10 rule, but she talked in those terms. And I then converted it to that more simple understanding that she then said, of those I've interviewed, most of them will say that 60% of the success of this is not from the mechanics, it's not from the process, it's from mindset and attitude. That's the 60%, 60, 30, 10. By the way, I think it was two weeks ago, I did go ahead and buy the Stuart Levine book. Uh, yeah. there, is, there is a Kindle version. Uh, the title escapes me. It may be Conflict Resolution, but it, that, is. it will be in the show notes. But I'll say buy it, go, go ahead and get it. I did skim it when I bought it. But again, thank you for bringing that title up. Uh, I have a couple more questions before I ask my next one. I want to make it easy for you. What's your favorite industry that you've ever worked in? I'm going to maybe you know, manufacturing of some kind. Yeah, I, uh, every industry that I work in has uniqueness and interesting facets to it. Consumer products industry, and there's lots of them tend to be the ones that are more interesting than the industrial products. You know, if you make parts and components for heavy equipment, you know, uh, yeah, that's, that's the same process and so forth, but it's not very interesting as well because you don't know the products. But when you work with a consumer products industry, you can see what they're doing as a consumer. You see their products and see what they've done and see what they're going and so forth. So that tends to be a little bit more innovative, if you will, or a little bit more uh, relating. Um, but I'd, every business is fascinating from its own standpoint. What's more fascinating than the company itself is the people within. Uh, the, the thing that makes companies is people. You know, it's not what they do or how they do it. It's people. And you can see the personality of a company in the way they get things done. And in, in some cases, you can see the personality of the company in the marketplace. Um, so it's the people that's the attractive and the fascinating part. And, and, you know, one of the pleasures that 
of doing what I've been doing for so long is that when you get this notion in top management's mind that says there's a there's a new way, there's a better way, there's a new approach to doing what you do dealing with balancing demand and supply, and they say, you know, we want to do that, and then the methodology to getting there is to charter a bunch of middle-level managers to be the heavy lifters, to, to become part of what we call the design team of the new process. That that group of middle managers, when they realize they're being given the charter, the imprimatur, to say, let's make major change to the country. I can be important. I'm not just going to follow instructions. I'm going to help shape that future. Seeing those young people, I'm talking people in their 40s, <laughs> young people, you're seeing them come alive for the first time in their career, perhaps, with energy and excitement to say, now I can really make a difference is just really the payoff. That's that's really fun doing that. The reason I ask is I'm looking around my desk and probably my favorite I'm looking at three monitors. I've got a lot of audio equipment, but to my left, I've got a Bose speaker. Uh, let's say you've got a small plant there in Florida that makes maybe a, a new, maybe a new type of Bose speaker. What, what would a day in the life of an SNOP team look like? Maybe they're coming together for a new quarter. Um, I don't know if these teams meet monthly or quarterly, maybe even weekly, but what, what would that team meeting look like? What would I get out of it if I were to attend with you as, as an assistant if you're consulting for this new company? All of the books we've written from different points of view or different components, all are part of the major process called SNOP. And it's a five-step process. It's not a single activity. It's a series of building activities that must be chronologically determined. Uh, from demand planning to supply planning to reconciliation to executive approval. those That set of meetings is what constitutes SNOP. It's not a single meeting. Uh, the, the final step, the executive meeting, is typically one no more than two hours where they set new policy, strategy, fiduciary responsibility, and or reconcile differences that couldn't be reconciled prior to that point. What it does is it empowers, if you will, in the early steps, the ability where people agree to make decisions and get things done, taken off the plate of the executives, all the trivial stuff. They only deal with the stuff that's policy, strategy, or fiduciary responsibilities. And and to them, that's exciting as hell. Uh, the attitude in these meetings while dealing with very serious issues is often comfortable confrontational, entertaining, and and a new personality, if you will. It's no longer a stressful circumstance. And when people disagree, it ignites not negative energy, it ignites positive energy. That happens almost at every one of the steps. Now, the step one is the demand reconciliation, I mean, the the data collection process. So that's kind of just rudimentary. But step two is demand planning. Step three is the supply planning, which follows demand, the new demand plan. Step th- four is the reconciliation of disagreement to whatever extent it can within existing policy strategies, fiduciary responsibilities. And step five is where it goes outside that framework or agreement could not be established. That whole series is a comfortable process, but yet serious and to the point. And it makes for uh, a satisfaction among the people 
of coming to reconciliation and getting everybody aligned. I like to say one of the direct outputs of these five-step processes is getting everybody in the organization aligned because they've all had a piece of contributing to the result. Even if the decision that got made wasn't one they would have made, they'll support it because they had part of developing it. Maybe not totally, but, but they had a piece of it. And that alignment of human energy is really what the 60% of formula is about. The 60% of the formula, it's getting people working together like never before. And when you do that, you can accomplish things never before possible when you get people working together. The five-step process, by the way, is in Chapter 4 of the Executive Guide of Sales and Operations Planning. Am I wrong, uh, Bob? This is the book that I always recommend first to board members, CEOs, but it's a hardback book. Again, it's the Executive's Guide. Actually, that's the subtitle, but Sales and Operations Planning, the Executive's Guide. It's only 98 pages long. Uh, By the way, my version has, uh, of course, no one can see this on the podcast, but I'm showing it to you. Do, do you recognize your 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 signature I there? The hand, I recognize the handwriting. <laughs> and uh, and and you say something very kind and 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 flattering. And that, by the way, that's dated August of 2010. So we were both a little bit younger and uh, a bit less gray, weren't we? But I, even though this is a short book, even in the back, I've got notes written in it. So I got notes, highlights all over it. You know, I highly recommend this book. Do you want to mention the other books that you think are relevant to maybe sure. uh, logistics planners, supply chain managers, et cetera? Yeah, that book, Tom and I wrote to get the attention of the busy executive. And I like to say the busy executive that has ADD because they got so much going on. They high, can only devote a little bit of time. I call, them, I call them high dopamine executives. <laughs> there you go. But you can read that book, 90 pages, 91, I think. In, in one leg of a plane flight. And it's designed to get their interest so they will say, I want to know more. Doesn't give them all the answers, doesn't give them all the details. But it's enough to say, this is a new approach. And that gets there. The reason that book is so important, and that's the second most popular book, is, is because without executive leadership, you cannot make SNOP work to its potential because of the 60%. You're not going to change the behavior of a corporation if the CEO is not engaged. Now, they don't do the heavy lifting. The design team does. But the executive and, his, and that person's staff, his or her staff, must be fully engaging. And they must do this process with unanimous consent. Anybody on that staff has a veto. And if somebody vetoes it, the president, the CEO has a challenge. What are they going to do? Because you can't move forward without a unanimous consent. Now, once that attention is gotten, then they start to say, now, what do we have to do to to come to this? They have to go through some form of collaborative consensus building education. Now, education is not training. Education is why and how come. That's the dairy we're ideal, is why and how come. That then must get done, and that's called education. And there's a book that supports that, and it's called The How-To Handbook. That is the most popular book. The How-To Handbook is the implementation manual, so to speak, which is a long version of that executive's guide with a lot more detail to support. And they then come to a collaborative consensus unanimously that let's put together a design team 
and charter them to put forth a live pilot in 90 days, short period of time. And we say the approach is low cost, low risk, quick results. And that 90 day pilot in full parallel demonstrates the process to the Leary executive that said, this sounds good, but I'm worried because of risk and uncertainty because it's, it's uncomfortable. And those that succeed with this are willing to move through that discomfort. Now that pilot approach, which uses the second book, gets the design team educated. And then what I go through with that design team is what I call the role reversal. In the beginning, I'm putting forth the concepts and principles that are why and how come overcoming objections. But we must get to quickly with that design team to the point where they say, aha, I get it. Technical term, aha. And you can see it on their face. You can hear it in their voice. Ah, I got it. But they don't know how that's going to apply to their business. That's the work of the design team. And the role reversal happens when the design team says, if we did this this way, would that be good? My role is then to say, yes, but they overcome my objections. So we must get to that. In the early stages, I, I overcome their objections. But very quickly in the process, they must overcome my objections because their energy is what's saying, how do we apply these concepts and principles to our business? Those are the, those are the two primary books to SNOP. Now, there are two other corollaries. One is called Sales Forecasting and New Approach. That deals with the getting out of the suicide quadrant and that sort of thing. Now, we're a little bit smarter today than we were back then, and so there's some subject about demand anticipation that's not in that book that we've learned since. And the other one is called Master Scheduling in the 21st Century, which is the managing in the mix space. How do you manage the mix space once the SNOP is set? Those are primary four books, the introduction plus the trilogy of the handbook, sales forecasting, a new approach, and the master scheduling. That's the trilogy, and the executive guide is the attractor, the getter. Now, there's two other books. One is called Building to Customer Demand. That's how do we change our strategy so that we don't produce everything to stock. That's impossible in a very changing world. And, and the, the, the sixth book is one that's the, the self-audit handbook. It's how do we audit our process and practice to define principles. And that's, that's a mechanical thing, and that's, that's the sixth book. And the seventh book that Tom wrote is, uh, that Tom and I wrote, uh, he wrote primarily, and I audited and, and did the introduction and such, is called Beyond SNOP which is applying SNOP to non-traditional areas. Like, 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 like service businesses? Okay. Yeah, service businesses and banks. And we, we did not hit that. So SNOP is not just for consumer products, uh, B2B manufacturing. No. It, it Again, servicing the service, professional services firms, it's applicable, right? Yes. Anytime you have a demand, and a demand can be a non-product demand. I, I want a loan. I'm, I go to a bank. Uh, that's a demand. Now, what are the resources you need to satisfy that demand? You need to have investment money available. You need to have loan officers. You need to have approvers. You need to have regulatory people. You need you need a resource, but there's no hard product involved. But you still have demand and supply, demand and resources, if you will. I know you're down to maybe one or two clients per month, but can people ping you on your website? I mean, can they still ask you questions? Are you still like at least accepting maybe... Do you do phone calls? Can you help people out if they need it? I I I, I get 
the volume of books that are selling now is is unbel- it's sustaining and that's because the books are really de- not dealing with a time dated uh, practice right it's no shelf life concepts and principles that apply to anybody so they're sustaining and the number of books you get bought and that results in phone calls and or emails and i answer every single one of them oftentimes it ends up in a dialogue and with zoom today it's really good because you know you can see fa- it's not quite face to face communications but it's getting closer and so when somebody writes me i'll write back to them if they have a legitimate interest and a lot of people it's it's you know an academic interest it's not a real interest it's you know this sort of thing but when it's a real interest i'll get on the hook and i'll talk to them and i that's that's completely pro bono I don't do it. And I'm not looking for new clients. I really am not. Because as you say, I'm only working with one at a time now at most. And, and, and I'm more than happy to answer questions. One of the sections of my website, is, of all things, is called Free Wisdom. And that's a bit arrogant, but it's a section which has a whole bunch of stuff. There's, there's a whole group of called Bullets from Bob. I write a newsletter three or four times a year, two to four times a year. Those are all on there. There's major articles on there. I used to be an editor for a, uh, a group called the IIF, the International Institute of Forecasters, and their journal. And there's a bunch of columns that I wrote on there. Case studies are on there. Presentations I've made are on there. There's some video on there. Presentations like a keynote I did in South Africa a number of years I've ago. I've seen that one. That will be in our show notes, by the way. Uh huh. But but I I I invite people to go to the website and it's www.rastallcompanyallspelledout.com. Uh, uh, but you'll have that in the notes. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and if you go there, there's a plethora of information. It's all free download from this guy I worked with early in my career, Ollie White. He said, you know, if you want an idea to go nowhere, copyright it strongly. And and I, I've lived by that. I If people take the stuff I have and use it, that's terrific. I feel flattered. If they give me attribution, I love it. But if they don't, that's okay. I see lots of times I see stuff that's not attributed, but I'm proud as hell that it's out there because that's what I've tried to accomplish is get stuff out there that changes the way people do the things they do relative to a company. It's hard for me to do that because I just give them the book because <laughs> a little bit, this, this is like another, I mean, this, even though it's someone else's business card, this is good. I like holding this because it's hard back. Like I said, it's only like 90 some odd pages. Right. Uh, Bob, I, I, we go on forever, but this is great. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I enjoy it. And I enjoy, I've enjoyed our friendship and relationship over quite a few years. We're going to call this a wrap for this edition of CFO Bookshelf. Again, I want to thank our guest, Bob Stahl. And again, check the show notes at CFOBookshelf.com. Always be learning, always be growing. I'm Mark Gandy. Until next time.